This week, I have the pleasure of speaking with Peter DeWitt, who is a leadership coach, author, and podcaster. He is known for being a nationally known keynote speaker focused on school leadership, collaborative culture, and instructional leadership. In this episode, we're going to talk about the potential of your campus being activity-rich and impact-poor, collective teacher efficacy, flipped leadership models, and of course, instructional leadership tips. Make sure you join us as Peter announces his new book, but also a new project, which is called Leaders Coaching Leaders Podcast. Welcome back, everyone, to Aspire, the Leadership Development Podcast, where we will be discussing the visions, inspirations, and experiences from top educational leaders. My name is Joshua Stamper, and you can connect with me on Twitter or on Instagram at Joshua double underscore Stamper. Peter, it is a true honor to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, Josh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And Peter, I'm so excited to talk about instructional leadership and school culture with you. And before we do that, I would just love to hear about your leadership journey. My, le- my leadership journey, not totally an interesting one, but I was, a, I was actually a teacher for probably four years. I had been in a high poverty city school for a couple of years. I was going back to do my master's degree in ed psych and my principal who had been there for 50 years, 50 wow. years, that he thought it was a mistake that I was doing my master's and that's like, and I should go for school administration, which is what we called it back then. Yeah. And I said, no, I would never want to be a school principal. I actually said that to him in the hallway. But there were a couple of guys, I wrote about this in collaborative leadership. There were a couple of guys that I knew from the gym who were retired teachers. And I told them what, what the principal had said because I knew him. And they said, well, what if you could be the principal you want to be, not the principal you have to be? And those words never left me. And I was on my, well, it was my last school that I was teaching in because I'd moved up to Albany from Poughkeepsie. I think I was a year into teaching there and I went back to get a degree in school administration. Um, and I, actually at the same time, I was, I was hired as an adjunct professor at the same, same college, which was handy because I put myself through all my degrees. So it made it a little bit cheaper for me, but I really loved the idea of being an adjunct. First it was undergrad, then graduate at the same time that I was teaching, at the same time that I was taking these courses in school administration. So I think I finished and then, well, I know I finished and then a year, a year after I actually got hired to be a principal in a school that allowed me to be the kind of principal I wanted to be. That's awesome. Yeah. So it was uh, really great. And actually that's where I stayed for eight years. That Mm -hmm. was the only school I was a principal love for eight years. And then I you know, left to enter into this world. Yeah. So the principal you wanted to be, what did that look like? When you finally got that job, you finally got to be in the main seat there. What were some of the initiatives or things that you really wanted to hone in on as the principal that you envisioned yourself to be? I think it was less about the initiatives that I wanted to focus on. And it was more about the community that I wanted to build. And I'm not just saying that as like a a good talking point. When I got hired to be a principal, I was hired three months before I officially started. And luckily who I was taking over for, she was becoming the assistant superintendent. So she actually said, come over anytime you want, but I was still teaching. So I would leave school one day a week, 3.30, and I would go over to the school and get to know the kids in the after school program. I studied the yearbook to get to know their names. I studied the yearbook to get to know the teacher's names. And by the time I officially started, I, you know, I knew everybody. And then the principal that I wanted to be I think it was heavily influenced by my time as a classroom teacher. I mean, you know, when I, I was an unsuccessful student, I barely graduated from high school. I'm the youngest of five, the first to go to college. I'm a first generation college student. And 
there was such a sense of pride when I became a teacher. My mom was just honestly really, really proud that I think I loved the 11 years that I was a teacher, but I wanted to try out being a building principal. Like I wanted to see what it was like. And I think the principal I wanted to be was just very much, I wanted to be connected to a classroom. I worked for principals who were not so connected with my classroom and I wanted to be different. And it was, you know, uncomfortable at first, I think for some of the teachers, because I said, I wanted to come into your classroom every day. And I don't think they thought I was going to, Um, (laughs) but, but I remember it took about eight months before they stopped, you know, they would look up and say, do you need something? And when they stopped doing that, I knew that I made it pretty far. So, yeah, I think the kind of principal that I wanted to be was to sit back and sort of understand where I fit into the greater good. Um, and I actually had a music teacher who retired and she said, you know, I remember your first year, you were very smart. You didn't come in and want to change everything. And I was like, I honestly was just so enamored with being a principal in that school that I wanted to know where I fit into that before I could ever look and say, let's make tweaks here and there and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, no huge initiatives, except for to get in the classrooms as much as possible, create relationships, study the yearbook, get to know everybody's names, and then start thinking about where is it we need to improve on the learning experience for not just kids, but all of us. And not to hunker down on the beginning stages of your leadership journey, but obviously this is for aspiring leaders or new leaders. And so you had a huge transition from a teacher to a principal going from the classroom to now a building leader. So if you wouldn't mind sharing, were there any struggles that you had within that first year? No, everything was perfect. I don't know, struggles? (laughs) (laughs) I figured for you, but you know. Yeah, I think everybody thinks that, you know, I walked in and everybody was clapping and applauding. That's not necessarily the truth. I mean, yeah, there are a couple of things. For new leaders, I think the biggest mistake they make is actually trying to change things. They go in there thinking, I'm the school principal, I need to change things. And that's the opposite of what I thought. But given that, when there were decisions that I made where I left people out of them, and that happened, that was something that I needed to learn not to do. So for example, six months into my principalship, I changed the parent pickup door. And if we're ever gonna, if we're ever gonna make a big deal in a school, <laughs> change the parent, change where parents pick their kids up. Yep. But it was actually had been dangerous. We had kids that would run away from their parents and just run out in front of a bus. Right. And that literally happened. And I sent notes home. You know, I talked to parents. I talked to the kids who were doing this. I I mean, I tried to do everything. And then I just said, you know what, I'm done. We're moving to the end of the the school. You're going to have to stand outside and wait for your your children. People were not very happy with me. And that's actually where I started writing a blog, believe it or not. That was like back in 2006, 2007. And that's when I started writing a blog, very early days of blogging. Yeah. Uh, and, but it was just for the school and it was just for the community. And I thought I would use that as a communication tool to have them understand why I made the decisions that I made. So I would often, if I made mistakes, which I did, there were things that I would always do. I would either explain why I did what I did. In that case, moving the parent pickup door was not the mistake. How I communicated about it at the very beginning, that was that was the mistake I made because I made a knee-jerk reaction and just said, you're not listening, I'm moving you. And then I had to go back and say, okay, let's talk about why I did this and all those kind of things. 
in general, what would happen if I made a mistake with the way I communicated with teachers, if I tried to jump into something without truly giving them a voice, then I would often find myself emailing an apology and apologizing at faculty meetings. Not so much that it made me seem weak, but I did it in an authentic way mm -hmm. because if you apologize too much, it's just gonna make it seem like you're always making mistakes. For me, it was really about when I truly made a mistake, I needed to apologize about it and communicate and talk about how we could do better next time. So Peter, you talked about getting to classrooms every single day and how that was really important for you. And I think that's a great transition to a very important topic, which is instructional leadership. And one that I think every administrator listening to is probably struggled with at some point. And especially when you're a new administrator going in to observe and to do walkthroughs, to give feedback to teachers, you know, as an administrator, what do you think we should be looking for within the classroom? Well, I think what you should be looking for is what you developed with what you develop with teachers. I don't think it's always up to you to decide on what you should be looking for. I think that's actually where, where school leaders make a mistake. Yep. It's all about what they want to see. And the reality is a walkthrough or learning walk process goes a lot better when you involve teachers in that decision-making to say, if we're going to paint a picture of a successful walkthrough or learning walk, whatever you want to call it, mm -hmm. in our school, what are the necessary components? And developing that success criteria with teachers is going to be the number one step that you should be taking. After that, it's really going to depend on what is most important for your school. Every school has a different current reality. And some schools that I'm working with as a leadership coach or running workshops, it's about common language and a common understanding around words like student engagement. You know, we often have a common language, but we don't have a common understanding of those words. We use them interchangeably, but it can mean something very different, depending on just different people within the school. So it's about developing the common language and common understanding around, it might be student engagement, where you want to talk about the focus of authentic engagement versus complying engagement. In some schools, it might be the instructional strategies you're using. You know, we want to develop more teacher clarity because we find that our students, we have to repeat ourselves or that students aren't as engaged in as they should be, or we find that we have to do a lot of review activities. Maybe what that means is we have to be more proactive and start looking at how we use, utilize teacher clarity in our school. So all of these things, you know, might be teacher-student relationships. One of the major things that happened with COVID when we went into pandemic teaching and learning last March is that students stopped showing up to remote learning. And I wrote a blog, you know, six reasons why students aren't showing up online. And part of it was equity or they were essential workers or they were taking care of their siblings. Mm -hmm. But some of it was just that we didn't have great relationships with them. So they were kind of like, didn't care about me prior to March. Why should I care? you know, if I'm going to show up after March. Yeah. So maybe in some schools, it's developing better teacher-student relationships. It really depends on the, that current reality of each school that you use as the focal point for where you want to spend that time with your learning wants. If you don't have that, then the leader is wasting their time walking into classrooms every day because they don't truly know what they're looking for. And teachers are baffled that a leader is walking into the classroom all the time, but they don't seem to get any feedback or understanding of why they're doing it in the first place. They're just glad that maybe they didn't get a seeming note at the end and they left unscathed. Mm -hmm. You have to develop that with your teachers in order to truly understand how this should look when you move forward. In your mind, what would be kind of the ideal situation for a leader and a teacher to make sure that 
they're getting the feedback they need, but then also are able to improve the skills and, of course, the instructional practices in the classroom. Yeah, that's where conceptual understanding comes in for me, because I think many times school leaders can look at all of these processes as separate segmented times in their day, right? Okay, I'm done with my emails. I'm going to get up and I'm going to go and do a learning walk, and then I'm going to do my faculty meeting. To me, they're all interconnected. So at the beginning of the year, we did goal setting. We were at Danielson School when I was a school principal. So we did goal setting. So I knew what all my teachers' goals were. My learning walks, uh, we didn't call them that at the time, by the way. Uh, you know, back then it was the three-minute walkthrough. So I think we just called them walkthroughs, um, but that was still sort of new language that was developing. I would go in and I would sit down with kids and ask them what they were learning, but I would specifically start to look at, you know, I know what the teacher's goal is. I wonder how they're doing with that. Um, that would turn into, hey, I read an article on educational leadership. And I know that this is a goal you care about. Here's the article, take some time to read it. And that would turn into, um, you know, formal observations where we would have that pre-conference where we would talk about what do you want me to see when I'm coming into your classroom? What's the goal that you've established for the year? And that would help me hone in on what I should be looking for and how students were reacting to that. And that also turned into faculty meetings. What is a common theme here? that we all seem to be concerned about within our school and how can I flip my faculty meetings in an effort to send an article out ahead of time so you can all read it before we come to the faculty meeting and talk about how you're putting this goal into practice. But it also meant that I was, you know, working with my principal's advisory council, which was ideally my instructional leadership team, to be able to talk about these pieces of learning too. A, you know, for me, it was always about being curious I very rarely, and I don't think I'm just thinking about this fondly, I think my former teachers would tell you, I very rarely walked into their classrooms to have a judgment on what they were doing. I walked into their classroom with curiosity to see what was going on and see how I could help. I was a big fan of um, Robert Greenleaf's philosophy on servant leadership. Mm -hmm. So it was really about how, how can I serve you? How can I help you? So overall, to your question, it's about how are these things interrelated and how do they fit together and what can I do to start to make it tighter as we're going through it. I'm going to pivot a little bit just because you brought it up in your answer. You talked about providing material to your teachers prior to a staff meeting and I heard you speak about flipped leadership and it always intrigued me with that model. And I know that you kind of worked through that as a building principal and had some trials at first, but eventually found a good solution to that model. So would you mind just sharing that with the listeners? Yeah. Uh, you know, years ago, I wrote a blog about how teachers should be engaged in flipped leadership for my education week blog. And Bill Farader, who was teaching in North Carolina at the time, and I haven't talked to Bill in years, but Bill Farader um, sent out a blog that said, hey, principals, if you think that if you think that the flipped classroom is so powerful, why aren't you flipping your faculty meetings? And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm a hypocrite. And so I did. Um, the first one did not go well because mostly because I didn't explain the process to teachers. <laughs> so, uh, you know, if you ever want to see something fail, don't explain it to the audience. But over time, over that series of probably a month, we were going through a lot of changes in New York State, a lot of accountability, a lot of 
state testing. I was one of eight principals that actually wrote a letter against the state education department saying that teacher evaluation should not be tied to test scores. My teachers at principal's advisory council, we went through an activity because they kept saying morale is low. And I was like, what does that mean? Like, again, I know that you're saying morale is low, but what does that mean? Let's try to dig down deep. And they explained that they didn't feel like they had a voice in their learning because all of our regional networks were sort of doing compliance-based professional development. They couldn't necessarily, in New York State, where I live, we could not necessarily go to conferences unless we paid for it ourselves. Mm. That's, a, that's something that I didn't, I didn't know that schools actually sent their teachers to, uh, to conferences until I started speaking at conferences. So I remember just thinking about, we have all these constraints and I spent so much time sort of pointing blame everywhere else. And then after they said, we don't have a voice in our learning, I was like, but we do. And that's where we got together as a principal advisory council, talked about what we wanted to learn together. The first time was feedback. Hmm. And I found an article in educational leadership that it had just come out uh, by Grant Wiggins and it was on feedback. So I sent it out to teachers three days before the faculty meeting said, I'd like you to read this, bring evidence of the feedback you give to kids, non-judgmental. We're going to take it where we are. And uh, they did. They, you know, some, some teachers actually brought papers with stickers on them, but hey, it's a starting point. Yep. And other teachers brought math journals. I remember my third grade team brought math journals and they were giving phenomenal feedback to students. And part of the reason why I wanted to do that is because I didn't feel like I was giving good feedback. I felt like I went into classrooms all the time, but I would walk out saying, good job. And uh, that's not feedback. So it was a thing that I wanted to learn about. Mm-hmm. Over, over time, I mean, that was almost 10 years ago when I did that. Over time, what I've realized through research around self-efficacy, you know, the confidence we have in our own actions is that self-efficacy is context specific. And and there are areas that you feel very confident in other areas that you don't. And the flipped faculty meeting idea, giving people the opportunity to read a short article or a blog ahead of time to get some sort of sense of what it might look like so they can then feel more comfortable in the faculty meeting, discussing it with their colleagues around the table is a whole lot better than if I hand an article to them at the faculty meeting and start cold calling people and asking them what they think, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, so totally. It was really just about, I'm always looking for ways to be more human mm-hmm. in, in my approach to my relationships with people. And that's one way to do it. So you brought up self-efficacy. So, you know, it looked like you were trying to hone in on that piece for your campus. And, you know, you talk about a lot on collective teacher efficacy. So how did you build that within your building? Collective teacher efficacy can only be built when you've got something to build it around. Yeah. And what that means is if we have a focus about feedback and we're going to be concerned about feedback, you build collective efficacy around that idea because you're learning together. It's about how a group comes together and learns from one another and tries out different strategies and tries to put them in place and, hey, that works, that doesn't work. Let's collect evidence. Collective efficacy is built when you have a focus. Mm -hmm. If your focus is to only build collective efficacy, that's probably not going to be deep enough. And I think people often used to get confused about that, especially when Hattie was talking about effect sizes and all that kind of stuff. For me, it was, you know, the feedback example, flipped faculty meetings. Those were ways that we build collective efficacy together. 
but it was also done from a social emotional level. We know that social emotional is just as important as academic. Yeah. So we went through school consolidations where we closed a one classroom per grade level school and they absorbed the whole population. And it was done in three months. Politically, it was like a storm. And we had to develop a way to look and say, how are we going to bring all of these kids in, close the school that has been seen as like the jewel of the school district and bring them in and absorb into our in our into our school system without them feeling like they just lost their identity. Sure. How are you going to bring two communities together? And I even wrote that on the website. Like my school was Post and Kill Elementary, bringing these two communities together. And I was always very open and honest about that because I never wanted one group to think they were losing their identity. Mm -hmm. So we built collective efficacy through the work we did in order to get through. I mean, there was a hate blog at the time. State police were at our board meetings. Wow. Like it was not a fun time. And there were people that actively wanted to see us fail. You know, we had to, we had to build it from a social emotional level as a principal advisory council, and then as a school building. So we built collective efficacy that way. So those are two examples, one academic with feedback, one social emotional with, with the school consolidation. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com slash podcast. Now let's get back to the episode. You have a blog. A, I believe the title is Why You Might Be Activity Rich and Impact Poor. And you talked about focus. And I think so often as an administrator, you can get caught up in all of the initiatives, especially as education is shifting. You know, you talked to social emotional learning is a big topic right now and assessment. And how is a administrator able to kind of hone in on a focus and not feel like they're missing out on all these different important initiatives? Well, there are two ways to go about it. So in instructional leadership, the book that came out last year, implementation was one of the six aspects to instructional leadership. And within implementation, I created a program logic model. Program logic models have been around for a long time. Joellen Killian, you know, you're from Texas. So yeah. Joellen's from, so Joellen Killian has done a lot of work around program logic models. And there are a lot of researchers. I made mine very simple. It was just five areas. And it was about understanding your current reality. And that takes a team to be able to do it. So we were talking about collective efficacy. You would be working in a group to start defining where is it that you want to be able to have this focus and you have to make sure that you stay on it. It takes consistency. That's why implementation is so hard. Right. People will move on to the next thing the next month and they don't even know that they do it sometimes. They just move on. That blog, particular blog you were talking about was actually me working with a school district that I work with in California that I was working with all their district directors. We were going through that particular program logic model mm -hmm. and we got the activities. So there's, there's the current reality piece. There's the uh, resource piece, which are called inputs on that one. There are activities and then there are outputs. When are you going to begin taking actionable steps? And then there's impact. You know, how have teachers and students been positively benefited from this implementation? We went through activities and they literally had 14 different initiatives they were working on. And when we got to impact, they could not tell me one. They couldn't tell me one way that it was a positive impact. And one of the people, I remember her name, Erin, looked at it and she just said, wow, we have a lot of activities, but we have very little impact. And I said, yes, your activity rich and impact poor. Right. That never forget. I, I was like, I, a day later, I got on a plane and I'm like, 
that sounds like a blog. And, you know, I wrote a blog about it. But that's the problem is that I have worked with thousands of school leaders and so many of them will come to me to say, we never take the time to actually focus on a program logic model first. Mm -hmm. Now I have new work coming out on collective leader efficacy. And in there, there's another program logic model, but it is very specific to four questions that I have for an instructional leadership team. And that program logic model is actually completely focused on those four questions. So it helps maybe bring more of an intentional focus Mm -hmm. than just sort of you pick and choose where you want to go. I don't want to offer too many constraints either. I think that sometimes when you're doing a program logic model, when I'm working with school leaders individually, it's good for them to pick a starting point because it's only them that this program logic model is for. When you start to venture into your school leadership team or your whole school building, then you're going to want to be even more intentional and also make sure that you're elevating the voices around the team to make sure that 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 goal that you're picking up on, that that your area of focus is very specific and and worthwhile for your time. First off, you've got eight books, phenomenal books out, and you you are working on something new that's coming out in September. So I was wondering if you could maybe give our listeners a sneak peek on what that new book is all about. Yeah, uh, all my books are interrelated. So I wrote about instructional leadership, creating practice out of theory which actually you know, came from me writing about collaborative leadership. And that was one of the six influences. And then I wrote about school, how do you do it? And so when I was doing the work on instructional leadership, I got to, there are six aspects to it. There's implementation, there's focus for learning. What do we look for when we're, when we're talking about learning walks? What is it we should be looking for? Instructional strategies, student engagement, academic and social emotional. And then I got to efficacy. And when I got to efficacy, I'd written a lot about self-efficacy. I've written and studied a lot about collective teacher efficacy. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that always bothered me was that every time we talk about collective teacher efficacy, the principle is only discussed as a part of it when it's about how that principle sets up the dynamics so teachers can work together. Sure. I'm coming from a place where I spent a lot of time in classrooms. I didn't have assistant principals. And I needed to be a part of the process. And we know that Ken Leithwood's great research out of Ontario is that principals are second to teachers on impact on student learning. So I'm like collective teacher efficacy, but what about the principals? And that's when I started to look at collective leader efficacy. Now it's never been written about before in a book. Ken Leithwood has done a lot of research around it. So it's really about all of the things that come along with it. So I've got the research side, section one is on the research side of collective leader efficacy specifically. Section two are what I call contributors. So there are eight contributors to what will make your school team not just functional, but also more impactful. And it takes into account, obviously, things about COVID, like when we look at the well-being of a team, what are things that we can de-implement, not just implement, right? But it's also about things like context beliefs. Do I work in a school system that is going to support me when I try to be innovative? And then what it goes into for section three is is an inquiry cycle where it's about what are we going to focus on together? And that's where those four questions that I mentioned before. So it's a three section book, research, and then the contributors to the team, and then the inquiry cycle that the team needs to be able to go through. Michael Follin wrote the forward. Carol Dweck is actually writing a testimonial oh, because awesome. I, yeah. So 
I'm very excited about it. It's really just the next step where when I looked at his instructional leadership, as you know, you know, it's not just about the building leader being an instructional leader. It's about teacher leaders, instructional coaches. And then what that goes into is now how do we work together as a group to make sure that we're elevating the voices of everybody? And, you know, I mentioned Michael, but Michael Fullen's always talking about how leadership is not just you as a building leader, but all the leaders that you foster in your school. So the collective leader efficacy is about that. Now, Megan Shannon Moran has done a ton of research on collective teacher efficacy, probably one of the most well-known. She's reading it right now to provide a testimonial. So I have a litmus test right now that's going on with, which is a little scary. You know, Ken Leithwood is actually looking at it right now. Carol Dweck, those are big names. Those are very big names. So those are my litmus tests though, when it, when it comes to it. So I'm very excited. It comes out of, uh, my editor just told me September 28th. Well, that's exciting. I know I'll be purchasing that book in September. Another exciting thing is that you've got a brand new podcast, Leaders Coaching Leaders. So will you just share with the listeners what that podcast is all about? I love, I mean, I'm glad you're interviewing me on the podcast. <laughs> uh, so thank you for that. But yeah. I really love moderating conversations, yep. much like you obviously do too. Yep. It's, you know, I, I moderate a web show for, for edu- education. We call it a seat at the table. I've learned a lot mm-hmm. about cultural responsiveness and equity and all of those things through the experts that I get to talk to. The podcast is the same thing. We have a season. It's March through the end of May. Uh, this season is focusing on reestablishing, reigniting engagement. Um, so Michael Follin has been a part of it. Uh, Doug Fisher, Nancy Fry but also maybe some authors that uh, people have not heard as much about. Our first guest was somebody that I value very much, Dwight Carter. Mm -hmm. He has a really great book out with Mark White. It's an opportunity for me to read others' research. I mentioned Megan Shannon Moran. She and Jenny Donahue came on and talked about collective efficacy. So it's really an opportunity to just ask these experts questions that I want to ask. And I feel pretty lucky to be able to do that. I, I don't get tired of those conversations because they just, well, they help inspire me. So I think that that's really important. So yeah, it's called Leaders Coaching Leaders. Peter, you also offer a lot of additional things. You talked about being a leadership coach and going out to schools, helping in that way, but then you also have some courses. So what are your courses about and how can our listeners participate in those? Yeah, it's a, it's a brand new, it's a, thank you for asking. It's, um, so I found this platform called Thinkific. And I created a collaborative leadership course that lasts for eight weeks, mostly asynchronous, but every Monday we do optional Zooms for an hour. And then I created an eight-week course on instructional leadership. And same thing, um, eight-week course, and we do optional Zooms every Monday. So I'll start the one on instructional leadership probably at the first week of June. That goes on for eight weeks. Um, The other two, you know, collaborative leadership just started today. And instructional leadership, the first cohort is going to be ending in the next few weeks. So it's um, it's been great because basically what it is, is they're reading through the book, but we have discussion boards, we have a community page, they have assignments that they have to do, they have a goal that they've had to create. I give them feedback on all of that, they have to input it, they have to send it to me through Thinkific. And then we get together in the Zooms, and I really listen to the feedback actually of the people taking the course because in the Zooms, we talk about the expectation for the week. We go through the content that they're about to read. I give them insight into what I was thinking when I was writing the book. And then they come up with questions about how does this look in my practice? And, my, and it's been really great because we've got people from UK, 
Canada, US, and Australia. And we've got um, teacher leaders, we've got instructional coach, building principals, we've even got superintendents. So yeah, it's been fantastic just to, I love a community of learners approach, just being able to talk Mm -hmm. with people about it. Yeah, and it seems very in-depth, so that's exciting. I also want to talk about how our listeners can connect with you on social media and then also how they can connect with you on your website. Sure, yeah. Actually, probably the best way to connect with me is through my website. So it's uh, petermdewitt.com, and then they can find me on Twitter, which is probably the easiest social media piece, Mm -hmm. which is at petermdewitt, and they can find me there on social media. Wonderful. So I'm going to end with this question because I always like asking my guests, as far as our aspiring leaders or our new leaders, if they're to do something tomorrow or next week to enhance their leadership skills, what would that be? Great question. I think if you're going to enhance your your leadership skills, you should seek the feedback of the teachers you work with. Hmm. Seek the feedback of the teachers and the students. Yeah, I remember one of the books I was taking vignettes from students and uh, one of my friends in California, he interviewed his son and he said, what do you think about your principal? And he looked at him and said, dad, I don't even know my principal's name. And I was like, that's telling. So seek the feedback of of teachers and students, Mm -hmm. and that will definitely make you a better leader. I couldn't agree more. Peter, you are an inspiration for sure in all of your work. I love the fact that you always have research that backs everything that you are talking about. I think you're brilliant. I I couldn't tell that you were a struggling student growing up, especially with how how much you've written and, and the impact that you're making in education. So it is a true honor to speak with you. I just appreciate you being on the Aspire podcast. Uh, Josh, thank you. I appreciate that very much.